Hello and welcome to the Daily Claims Podcast, where we talk about life as an insurance adjuster from the perspective of property, auto, liability, and workers' compensation adjusters. My goal is to bring interesting topics in the world of claims adjusting to people who are working as an adjuster now and to people who are considering a career as a claims adjuster. Welcome to part two of our two-part series on our discussion of depreciation. In this episode, I talk with Chantal Roberts about whether labor is something that should be depreciated in property damage estimates. Ms. Roberts is a claim handling standards, practices, and procedures expert with 20 plus years experience as a multi-line claims adjuster. In her first book, The Art of Adjusting, she attempts to bridge the gap between being a new adjuster and a seasoned adjuster by offering some of the lessons she learned so that adjusters can get back to doing what they are meant to do, settle claims quickly, proficiently, and economically. I hope you will enjoy this discussion about depreciation. And I'd love to hear from you. So join me on the Adjuster Manuals Facebook group and let me know where you weigh in on this depreciation issue. Let's say you had two homes, uh, two tiny homes. We'll, we'll say they're, uh, for argument's sake, we'll say they're a thousand square foot a piece. And one of them was built by carpenters, stick built, as we call it. And uh, the, the materials were delivered to the site and the carpenters built it and roofers roofed it and siders sided it and so on. And right next door, another house was installed and it was a manufactured home and it was pretty much the same thing. Now there's two fires and they both burned down. How would you depreciate them? Would you depreciate them the same or differently? Would you depreciate labor on one but not on the other? Yeah, I don't see a difference. Because if they're installed at the same time or built at the same time, they're the same across the board, I would apply ACV, which for the most part, we we say is defined as a, a physical deterioration and obsolescence. And so I would not depreciate that labor to rebuild what I would depreciate or we call hold back depreciation um, because I I would keep it to give to the insured at a later date um, is the materials because obviously the frame, even though the frame has been encapsulated by, let's say, a brick or a siding and then drywall, it still has some depreciation because it's been used. It has stressors on it or whatever, but the labor to drive that nail into the header and the footer and the siding and the screws to screw in the drywall and the mud uh, to apply the mud for the drywall, it, it it's still there. Um, if we wanted, I guess if the thing was, then would we not need to, just to throw this out, would we not need to then file a GL claim, a general liability claim against the builder because their um, work isn't holding up. And that's why we're depreciating it. I mean, that's just, that's ridiculous. Well, in my example, these two buildings burned down. Okay. So there's no, you know, obsolescence or, or defects that you could blame the contractor for. But in one case, they, the contractor submitted a bill for 50,000 in labor and 50,000 in materials for a total of $100,000. The house on the right, we'll say, that was built by carpenters. The house on the left, which is basically identical, but was manufactured in a factory 
and brought it on a truck and a crane set it there. That also cost $100,000. But the labor material wasn't broken down. That's just how much this house cost. So comparing those two, would you depreciate only materials on the house on the right and on the house on the left? What would you do? (laughs) Um, No, I don't think my answer still changes. Uh, because again, and I know you said it was a it was a fire, so there's no obsolescence, but there is. I mean, we've used the house anyway. Um, yeah, but the fire yeah. is the cause of the loss. The, let's let's say both houses are five years old, and we okay. all agree. Let's say we all agree that they're all that both houses are subject to ten percent depreciation. But a house on the left, you're going to depreciate it by ten thousand dollars to 90,000. The house on the right, you're going to depreciate it by only $5,000 according to, according to your logic. If you're only going to depreciate materials, which was half of the cost in my Well, example. no, because because I wouldn't depreciate labor on the house on the left. Uh, uh, okay, so the manufactured house you would not depreciate labor either. No. I I, I wouldn't so how is that different than depreciating everything but labor on a washing machine? Okay, so now I'm confused because on a washing machine, are we repairing it? Nope, total loss. And, and yeah. Okay, so it's a total loss. Total loss. Then And it came from a factory and it had a single bill for uh, $1,000. Right. Um, no breakdown of, of materials and labor. How would you depreciate the washing machine? versus how you would depreciate the manufactured home. Okay, so I would depreciate it based off of its life expectancy. So if, again, if it has a 20-year life expectancy and it's been going for 15 years, I would depreciate it like 75%. Okay, but we've agreed in principle that both houses are subject to 10% depreciation. Right. So are you going to depreciate the one on the left according to materials only? Yes. Even though you don't have a, a sheet that tells you what the material cost was versus the labor costs? The labor is still there. Even though the house is burned down, the house is no longer in existence, the labor was still there. But how? Just like the labor was still there on the mobile home. So that's where my my brain has a problem with it because yeah. the, the house on the left was manufactured in a facility presumably the labor costs would have been a lot less because of that and material costs may have been the same or more who knows they may have hit, may, been able to make a a much larger profit on that manufactured home for all we know and and we don't know their overhead costs but if we take a washing machine for a thousand dollars we don't have access to the same information. So on that washing machine, we depreciate it by 10%. We don't say we're only depreciating the materials on that washing machine. And to my mind, you shouldn't do that on the manufactured home either. And because of that, you shouldn't do it on the stick-built home either. So I think, see, it's interesting because in my mind, I'm seeing a lot of different things. So let's take it one step at a time. A, I, I agree with you that it would likely be cheaper to, to build the manufactured home because all of the product is brought in. If I were to quote unquote depreciate, and I don't think I would use the word depreciate anything, it would be on the fees that the manufacturer would charge for the delivery and the setup of the home. Because if you're not stick building it right at the location, but you're 
like trucking it in and then using a crane to pop it down. I mean, those are still labor costs. And yes, those labor costs still exist, but it doesn't have to do with the structure that I insure so much. So and while I, as the insurer, may owe that, I would likely withhold that amount or pay half of it to uh, when when a new home is being brought in. I'd actually have to see the policy. Anywho, in regards to the washer, that is a total loss. The thing about buying the washer and building the washer, I don't care about the, the labor for building the washer. I would look at the labor for installing the washer. And I don't think I would pay for the labor to install the washer until it was installed. But I think we're talking about two different things. I don't think that's the labor to, uh, I don't think that's the same as the labor to put up a roof. Yeah, I, so the, the labor to install the washer and the labor to set the home, I would separate that out. For this discussion, yes. it doesn't matter. It's not part of this discussion. And, and I would actually agree that depreciating the um, setup fees would not be appropriate for a manufactured home. But, but again, you, the end result in both cases, the house on the left and the house on the right, is that you have a fully functioning house with a finished roof, siding, flooring, everything. They're pretty much the same house, except one was built differently than the other. And I don't see the justification for depreciating them differently. And I because, you know, a house doesn't just happen without the labor. That's one of the arguments, I believe, in North Carolina that they used, that you know, a house doesn't just magically appear Right. To get that house, that end product, the labor has to be part of it. Therefore, it is subject to depreciation. Uh, okay, I just heard you say, and I don't know if I misheard, but I heard you say that you think that the depreciation on labor would not be different per each house. Correct. Okay, I totally agree. But I, I would not take depreciation on the labor for these two houses when I'm paying the two claims. So how do you... How do you cost, how do you analyze the cost of them? Because on the manufactured house, they advertise it on their website. The customer had an invoice, paid invoice for $100,000. Uh, I see what you're saying. Okay, okay, okay. I see what you're saying. All right. Um, here's, here's what I would do. In Xactimate, I would, ha I would have my appraiser, you know, write me out an estimate. And, and say, okay, so it was this manufactured home. Uh, Xactimate says that it could be rebuilt for this, even though it's a manufactured home and everything. And here is the cost of the materials. And here is the cost that it should take the manufacturer to rebuild this, knowing that that could be totally wrong. And I would pay off of the Xactimate estimate. And then when the insured said, hey, that's not enough, you know, here's my invoice or my proposed invoice to buy another mobile home, so to speak. And let's say there's a difference of, you know, I don't know, $50,000 or whatever, um, then I would probably adjust the difference. But the way that I would settle it originally the two claims originally is I would get the general contractor for the stick built to write me up an estimate. 
a line item estimate. And I would see his overhead and profit, I, you know, which would basically be his labor or her labor. I shouldn't be sexist and, um, and pay that, you know, pay the materials, less the deductible, less the depreciation for the ACV. Okay. Then on the manufactured home, I'd have my appraiser write me out an estimate. Uh, and then I would, again, do the same thing uh, because in Xactimate, you can write out manufactured homes. And I would say, all right, RCV, less depreciation, less deductible, pay ACV. Mr. Insured, Ms. Insured, give me your invoice for the home that you plan on buying. When I saw that invoice and see that it's the same, you know, it's still a, I don't know, a thousand square foot mobile home and not 1,500 square foot mobile home, then I'd be like, oh, okay, I see that it's like $20,000 more because of inflation or whatever. I'll give you an extra 10,000. But that's the way that I would settle those two claims. And if if an adjuster were to depreciate both of them equally at 10%, uh, labor and materials on both houses, then, and you were the attorney working for the policyholder and you sued the insurance company saying that it's unfair to depreciate labor, what would the position in support of that be? Well, I still think that it goes to the effect that those houses still existed. Those houses, even though they no longer exist, the labor on them still was applicable prior to the total loss of their home. So depreciating the materials and the labor is unfair to my client, your policyholder. It doesn't give them enough money. It doesn't adequately indemnify them. It, uh, of course, and if I were drawing up the the pleadings, I would, of course, put in there that um, the insurer is forcing the insured to initiate lawsuit to get payment. Because again, like I said, that is a bad faith uh, rule uh, that the um, National Association of Insurance Commissioners model law in almost every state has adopted. Um, yeah, that's that's the way that I would look at it. I would also say that the policy language would be ambiguous. I think I would throw that in there saying that, you know, ACV, actual cash value is not defined. Depreciation is not defined. If, especially if I'm in a state where uh, it hasn't been defined. I mean, like Florida, Arkansas, Alabama, they have defined those things and said that it's okay. Um, if the policy states or doesn't state that they will depreciate labor and overhead and profit and taxes and all that kind of stuff, that's another argument that a lot of attorneys have used. So you may start seeing in some, and I have seen them in some expert witness work, where the policies are stating we have the right to depreciate labor or we have the right to depreciate sales tax and overhead and profit. Uh, And so because the states are saying, hey, if it doesn't say that you have the right, then you can't. So as an attorney, that's what those are the, the high points that I would hit. Yeah, my reason for asking the question that way is that 
this issue has been litigated across different states and they've all come up with something different. And um, the point, uh, I guess, of the discussion is, you know, I've, I put my stake in the ground that um, I think labor should be depreciated. You put your stake in the ground that it should not. And neither of them, I believe, are wrong. And, and particularly if you live in a state that is subject to broad evidence, that opens the discussion up to all of these arguments that we're both making on either side. So as an adjuster, your job is to figure out the most equitable and amicable way to get the job done, which absolutely, I kind of like, which makes me like working in a broad evidence state because I can have these discussions and justify what our number is going to be eventually. Now, if you're in a state that says, absolutely, you cannot depreciate labor, then that's what you do. If you live in a state where that says you can, then I guess it's up to the carrier as to how they want to handle it. So that was a fun discussion. But well, here, I mean, but well, here, I'm mean, not finished yet, William, young man. <laughs> I thought we decided that I was right and that was it. Oh, no, 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 sweetie. I'm a redhead and therefore I'm right. <laughs> I, I thought you knew that. Um, okay, so here's my thing. I totally agree with you in the fact that what's great about this job is that we get to help people and that we must do the equitable thing in helping our insured and give them the most money possible. But and not even but, but and that the broad evidence rule is great in the fact that it takes more information to determine the ACV. And maybe we need to take a step back and determine what ACV is. Because like you said earlier, when we first started, there are, I think, three different ways to determine ACV according to the courts. And I would say even if we didn't work in a broad evidence kind of, of state, I still go back to the fact that what if we gave grandma, uh, let's say it takes $5,000 to repair her roof and, you know, it's been there for 20 years and it's a 30 year shingle. Giving her, uh, let's say $2,000 less her $1,000 deductible. So basically giving her $1,000 to replace a $5,000 roof, you know, she's not going to have money to replace it. Is that equitable? Even if the state and the policy says we can do it. I guess th there's a lot of um, other factors to consider. I mean, if if the roof is completely cooked and should have been replaced 15 years ago, you know, there can be a justification for some heavy depreciation there. It's yeah, a judgment call absolutely. for sure. Absolutely. And I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why uh, Florida has gotten into so much trouble. It's because Florida has been hit again and again and again and again, and insureds are not able to replace their roof as quickly as, bless their hearts, Florida has been hit. And so insurers are going, okay, so you had a new roof and we depreciated it and you didn't fix it. I mean, then you're going into the, the rule and we are totally mixing a lot of things um, instead of just taking a pure academic, which is why I think talking about claims is fun, instead of just taking like a pure academic example. But in real life, uh, and life is messy, uh, you even deal with like rolling totals. 
And um, attorneys would get on to me, oh, the policy doesn't talk about rolling totals. What are you talking about a rolling total? And I'm like, oh, come on. Everybody knows what a rolling total is. It's that um, car that you see going down the road that you know isn't worth $5, um, but it still works. So what's its value? Salvage wise, it probably has a value of $500. But if it were to have an accident right now, um, it, 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 I, I'd probably pay $5 for it, you know? So you have that same theory with the roof. Yeah, the, the roof could be completely gone, meaning it's still technically there, but all the, the granules are missing, you know, and all this kind of stuff because of multiple windstorm losses. But it still functions. So now we've got the functional replacement. How, how would I settle that? How would you settle that, Bill? Getting into messy claims about depreciation and value. Yeah, I, I think it's it, that's a, a moment for a judgment call, I guess. Um, a few years ago, well, probably 10 or 15 years ago, I had a lightning claim. And there's a bunch of electronics and electric things in the house that were damaged and affected. And one of the things that was damaged was a range, a general electric range that, to the owner's knowledge, was manufactured in 1952. Actually, there was a sticker on the back. It's 1952. And they used that thing every day. And it was in pretty good shape. It was gorgeous. It was. It looked like something from 1952. You know, it was, it was uh, a lot of chrome and a lot of, you know, embellishments like they would make things back in the 50s. And uh, I had to figure out the depreciation on that. Well, standard lifespan for a range, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's 15 years. Maybe it's 12. I don't know these days. Um, I could not use that as a gauge because the depreciation would have been 100%. So I didn't make a judgment call. I think I went with 20 or 30% or something like that. And, you know, the insured was completely in agreement with that because they knew it was very old. And um, eventually they, they did replace it with uh, a new one and were able to collect the hold back. But that's what it's about, I guess, is just making those judgment calls when you have to make an educated opinion about something. Uh, and... Not only that, but you have to settle the claim too. It's not just your opinion, but what's going to get the the matter closed? That I will agree with you absolutely, one hundred percent on. And I think it kind of takes us full circle as we come to the bottom of the hour and and wrap this thing up. Is that it is a judgment call, and we've got to remember not to become entrenched, even if it is the insurer's. Uh, you know, standard operating procedure that we take uh, depreciation on labor or depreciation on overhead profit and tax and, and things of that nature, that just because we do that doesn't mean that we live and die by it, that we have to, as adjusters, adjust to it because we need to be equitable towards our insurance. Yeah, if you can justify something with an F9 note in Xactimate and um, and it makes logical sense to whoever you're reporting to, then you got to do it. Because the folks that dig their heels in never close a claim. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, that's when I get brought in as an expert witness, either for the insurer or for the... Uh, it, uh, insured. Absolutely. And so I would say that this wraps up another episode of the art 
of Adjusting Clubhouse Room. I'm Chantel Roberts, and I'd like to thank Bill and uh, Nathan for coming up and talking to us today. So yeah, Bill, what what's going on? You have a podcast and um, the Adjuster Manual Room on Facebook. Yeah, so the Adjuster Manual Room, I just looked, it's just about a month old now. And um, it's a not a room, but it's a group, a, face, yeah, a private Facebook it. group for, for people who want to come in who are interested in possibly starting a career it's a place where they can find out if it's right for them first and if they do think it's right for them it's a place where they can learn about how to become an adjuster and what to do once you get to be an adjuster and my goal is to once they're maybe a year into their job probably move on to another group somewhere uh maybe come to the art of adjusting uh clubhouse room and learn some more but uh, yeah, it's a neat place. I get a lot of very interesting questions from people and it's been great. And I run this independent adjusting company called Auten Claims Management. And uh, you can find information on that at www.auten.claims. And uh, we handle liability claims. Uh, although I am very well versed in first party property claims as well. That's how you started, That's how you started out, out, I think. It is. I started out as a... Oh, well, I was hired to be a property guy because of my construction background. And about a month in, they said, you know what? We really need you to handle liability claims too. So off you go to Vail. And they sent me down to Vail. And uh, I learned a whole lot. And I've been handling, I've been multi-line ever since. Wonderful. Well, guys, y'all can find me and contact me at theartofadjusting.com. That is also where the link is up top. There's lots of good information up there. And uh, thank you for coming and joining us and talking. We will either see you in two weeks or I'll let everybody know when our next room is. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye. Thanks for joining us again on the Daily Claims Podcast, where we talk about life as an insurance adjuster. Hit that subscribe button real quick and tell all of your adjuster friends to check this out as well. Join Chantal Roberts and Bill Auten on the Clubhouse app every other Tuesday where we head up the art of adjusting and discuss all kinds of exciting insurance topics. For anyone interested in becoming a claims adjuster, you need to get on Facebook and search for the Adjuster Manuals Facebook group. You'll find helpful posts there for anyone new to adjusting, including training opportunities and licensing coursework with a pass guarantee. For independent adjusting services, go to www.autin.claims. And for anyone interested in working as an independent liability adjuster, go to www.autin.claims FQS and scroll down to the skills assessment button to fill out your information and we'll get back to you right away.